Yes, my friends. What's up? What's up? We are back. The drought is over. The pilgrimage podcast has returned for the curious, creative, and contemplative soul. Feels good to be speaking into this microphone again. Honored that you're listening. I'm excited to dive into a new episode, kind of embarking on this journey of Lent. Whether that's something you've engaged with or not, it's the 40 days that leads up to Easter. And I want to position myself to be fully present and engaged within this chapter. And I want to invite you into some of my process, looking at a specific scripture that kind of frames and underpins the whole journey, the whole process. So we're going to get into that in a second. I want to let you know that I'm doing things a little different. This episode was recorded with video and that whole episode, that whole video unedited is shared with my incredible patron subscribers. Shout out my subscribers. I'm so grateful to the patron community who helped support my work, not only this podcast, but my music. I couldn't do it without you. Shout out Jess. Shout out Joel. Thank you, Gareth, Stephen. There's so many names and each week I'm going to shout out a few of you. I'm so, so thankful to you all. If you want to sign up, you can do that at joshualukesmith.com. Not only will you get a video version of the podcast, but below the video, we're going to have a discussion around the podcast. So you can share your thoughts and questions and I'm going to get back to absolutely every single question and comment that is uh, shared there. So if you want to engage a little bit more with the community aspect of this podcast, then please sign up to Patreon. I'm so grateful, so indebted to you all. We also have Right Club launching next week on the 1st of March. Right Club is a gathering for those who write and those who yearn to. It's a 15-week process of discovering the writer within you. I believe that there's words inside you, words that were destined to exist outside of you. And I think as writers, we need a space for community, accountability, and inspiration. It's not a path that we were destined to walk alone. So if you want to find some inspiration, you want to find some accountability, you want to learn from some people, some special guests, as well as myself, people that have journeyed in this process and given themselves to the writing craft, sign up at joshualukesmith.com. I can't wait to see you there. But hey, it's, uh, it's been a while. So let's get into this episode. All right. Well, without further ado, here we go. This is uh, this is a new episode. This is something that I've been brewing on for a while. This is a scripture that I've been meditating upon. And I suppose now at this particular point in the year, especially within the calendar of the church, we're going into this chapter called Lent. It just felt like the right time to share it. It's something that I'm living out. It's something that is a part of my day-to-day. It's my Tuesday afternoon and my Saturday morning. This isn't a singular event. This isn't me just talking into a microphone, sharing some information. I'm bringing you into a spiritual reality um, that is at work in my life, and I want to invite you to partake in as well. This is, uh, this is an episode that I've called Kiss the Ground for reasons that you'll discover. So we're going to begin by reading some scripture. And again, like if, if scripture is new to you or perhaps scripture is old to you, perhaps scripture is something that you're unfamiliar with or perhaps you're so familiar that you're indifferent about it. I want to pray a simple prayer. It's the prayer that St. Paul prayed. 
May the eyes of my heart be enlightened. May I today bear witness to something that surprises me. May the cynic be surprised. May the mystic be awoken. May there be a sense of awe and a sense of um, curiosity that develops within me as we dive into these ancient pages. If this whole conversation that involves Jesus feels like something you're hesitant about or something that you're wary about or something that you're just disillusioned about, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Today, we're not talking about lofty, abstract, spiritual ideas. We're talking about what it means to be human. We're talking about what it means to live each day to its fullest and not with some kind of self-help guruism, but with this idea of abundance that Jesus talked about. Spiritual blossoming, springtime in every season. So this is a, this is a scripture that is familiar to a lot of people. It's Matthew 4. It's titled The Temptation of Jesus, and there's so much in it that I want to explore. Some of it we won't have time for, but let me read it. So here we go. This is Matthew 4, verse 1. It says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 1, and there's so much in there. Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness by the devil. The chapter before this, we have seen Jesus' baptism take place. So Jesus has gone down into the waters. He's come out of the waters and the heavens have opened up and a voice, an audible voice has declared this, behold, this is my son who I love and in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit, it says, descends upon him like a dove. So you have this incredible moment of bearing witness to the Trinitarian God, to Jesus the Spirit and the voice of the Father speaking over him. It's incredibly mystical, it's incredibly powerful. And we see Jesus in perfect relationship with the Spirit and with the Father. And we get this insight to this eternal relationship, this divine dance as it's been called by a number of different scholars and mystics over the centuries. And um, now the next chapter we hear that very same Spirit that spirit who knows and loves Christ is leading him into the desert, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When you hear the word devil, you'll, you'll probably have an image that comes to mind. I want to encourage you to try and let go of a kind of medieval, artistic sort of image of this little dude with red horns. And I want you to move into a slightly more uh, abstract, a slightly more poetic, nuanced, subversive idea. This is the tempter. This is the force that pulls us away from living who we really are, from living our life that is defined by this abundance that Jesus talked about. Jesus said, I've come to give life and life in abundance, but there is one who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And I've talked about this on different episodes. There's an episode that I did a little while ago called Get Behind Me Satan, where I talk a little bit more about um, the kind of scriptural idea and image of the Satan, um, as it's often referred to. But here we know Jesus is being led into a situation where the tempter, the enemy, the adversary is going to come against him. So verse 2 says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And there's so much in this as well, man. Verse 2, and there's so much in it. Why? Well, first things first, it's stated as something that is like so obvious to us. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And yet we're talking about Jesus here. 
We're talking about God in human form. So what does that tell us? At the beginning of the expression of God on earth in human form, there's an awareness of and an acknowledgement of weakness, of carnal weakness. He was hungry. So already we're having to acknowledge, if you're looking at the kind of plethora of different gods that are on option, this God, this God revealed in Jesus is the God who gets hungry. 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and he's hungry. He's weak. What else? 40. Man, this number is significant. Moses was up the mountain for 40 days. Noah was in the ark 40 days. The Israelites were in the wilderness 40 years. A pregnancy is 40 weeks. There's something about this idea of 40 which speaks of renewal, which speaks of change, which speaks of transition. Jesus is there for 40 days. And I have scribbled in the margins of my Bible, why did the tempter not come for him in 5, 10, 12, 32 days? Why 40? Because at 40, he was at his weakest. 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus is stumbling through the desert. He's panting. Oh my days, he's weary, he's exhausted. And along comes this voice, the voice of the tempter. And though this might sound lofty and abstract to you, I know that you know this voice as well. This is the voice that pulls you away from who you are. This is the voice that pulls you away from what you're here to do. In, the, in his book, The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield calls it the resistance. And the resistance only comes for you, only comes for you when you're getting closer and closer to that which you were born to do. That's when you start facing resistance. You don't face resistance if you live a life which is defined by being comfortable, by doing what that is, by doing what is most easy and kind of most acceptable. It's when you go against the, the trend, when you go against the crowd, when you pursue with diligence, defiance, and discipline a life that costs you something, that's when you start troubling the waters of resistance. And here we have Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, and the tempter comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What an interesting temptation. If you are the son of God, you got to remember just the chapter before this, Jesus was spoken of by God in an audible voice. This is my son who I love in whom I'm well pleased and upon whom my favor rests. What does that tell us? The most defining attribute of Jesus' ministry, of Jesus' life, was his identity of being a son. The tempter knew if he could make Jesus doubt that, if he could make Jesus prove that outside of his peace, outside of his sense of security and centeredness, everything else was going to fall down with it. Jesus shows us that we can never become too comfortable with the truth that defines who we are. We need to be reminded of this every single day. In fact, the proximity we have to the truth of who we are as a child of God, the proximity to that truth that we are a child of God is what defines our success, our security, and our fruitfulness in every single other area. Fruit outside of true identity Fruit that is revealed just because you're striving to be someone you're not isn't actually any fruit you want to have in your life. But fruit that is born out of a place of, I know who I am, is long-lasting. So the devil, as he's called here, is trying to get Jesus to prove who he is outside of a sense of peace and security. If this is who you are, turn the stone into bread. 
Well, he's just appealing to Jesus' hunger, his carnal hunger. You want to eat something, right? We'll prove who you are. Turn the stones into bread. The tempter wants to convince you that you're hungry, but in context to what someone else has or another state of being that you could experience. Every single pound or dollar that's ever been put into the marketing industry is to convince you that you're hungry, that you're lacking, that you're insignificant or insufficient in context to someone else or in context to a life that you don't have. So every single Instagram advert you've ever seen, every single billboard that you've ever seen, every single penny that's ever been put into marketing is to fuel a sense of hunger in your soul born out of comparison. If I just had X, and I have fallen prey to it so many times. How many times have I bought something online that was purely the result of me being targeted by some social media marketing company that worked out the algorithms of my profile and some of my you know, likes and interests and boom, sold it to me. And I fell for it. I fell into the trap of thinking if I could just have that and better than that, if I could have that tomorrow with some Amazon Prime goodness, then I'll feel less lack than I'm feeling right now. But Jesus responds with this. Mm -mm. It is written. And he says it is written. And then he quotes scripture. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why is that significant? Well, Jesus is tired and he's weary. He's panting. He's desperate. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And so he says, it is written. As if he's appealing to a transcendent, objective truth that he might not even feel within himself. He might not feel it, but he knows that it's written. It is written. Perhaps it was said genuinely with panting breaths. It is written. Man shall not live off bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let me tell you what's so significant about this. The, word, the last word that he heard that came from the mouth of God was, Behold, this is my son, who I love, in whom I'm well pleased. So he's still living off that truth that he was given in the chapter before. He knows that he could turn the stone into bread, but it won't satisfy him to a deeper level than he's already satisfied by hearing that beautiful, redemptive, extravagant display of affection that came from the voice of God. This is my son. So there's two types of hunger. There's a hunger that's born out of comparison, but there's a hunger that's born out of conviction. And this comes as bad news if you're a foodie like myself. The whole point of the spiritual life is to remain hungry. You know how when you were little, you'd come down in the kitchen for some food around 6 p.m., dinner was being served at 6.30 or 7, and you start rummaging through the cupboards. This is what I used to do. And then your mother or your father would say, hey, don't lose your appetite. Stop snacking. Don't lose your appetite. Because they're preparing something for you. They're making a meal for you. Don't lose your appetite. That's the voice of God every single day to us. Don't lose your appetite. If you look at the whole scriptural arc, it ends in Revelation with a feast. It's called the Great Wedding Supper of the Lamb. It's as if this whole thing ends with a celebration and a feast hosted by God. And the voice of the Spirit to us is don't lose your appetite. Don't snack. Don't take shortcuts. Don't try and find insufficient fulfillment. You have an internal, eternal longing. Nothing here is going to satisfy it. 
You want to get to the end of your days hungry. You want to get to the end of your days unsatisfied. You're not dissatisfied. You have a deep sense of contentedness, but you've acknowledged that there's nothing in this world that could ultimately ultimately satisfy your soul. You have ultimately, you've been living off the word of God. You've been living secured and satisfied, content from the voice of God speaking into your life. That's what's kept you going. Not materialism, not, not success, not stages, not reputation, not finances, not relationships. None of that actually satisfies. satisfies. Is it good? Yeah. Is it helpful? Yeah. Can it be really healthy? Yeah, of course. But does it ultimately satisfy an internal, eternal longing? No, it can't. It doesn't even touch it. I went out for dinner the other night with a friend. I ordered a, ordered a burger and chips, but he got tacos. So I got to the end of my burger and chips, and all I could think about was how good his tacos look. So guess what I did? I went to the bar and I ordered some tacos. <laughs> Don't lose your appetite. Don't think if you just had what someone else had, you would feel satisfied. You were made to feel homesick for a home you've never been to. You're made to feel hungry for a meal you've never had. The spiritual life, the aim of the spiritual life is to keep us hungry. And this whole season of Lent that we're walking into now, these 40 days, it's all framed around Jesus' time in the wilderness, his 40 days, his 40 days of remaining hungry. So when you hear people say, you know, what are you giving up for Lent? You giving up some chocolate? You giving up something that you go to? Replace man cannot live off bread alone. Man cannot live off Netflix alone. Man cannot live off social media alone. Man cannot live off a pro promotion, a relationship, a financial investment alone. But every word that comes from the mouth of God. This season is there to strip us of what we think satisfies our soul beyond an acknowledgement of our need for God's voice. For spiritual depth. For relationship with the spirit. So Jesus replies, no, no, no. It is written. Man cannot live of bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says in the Beatitudes, and I've, you know, I've done a whole series on this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You're only satisfied when you're hungry. You're not actually satisfied when you're full. You're satisfied when you're hungry. So how can you stop snacking? That's the question I'm asking myself in this chapter of my life. How can you stop snacking? How can you stop taking shortcuts? How can you stop thinking that you're able to achieve an instant sense of gratification when you have an internal, eternal longing? You have an internal, eternal disposition. None of this is going to satisfy. So how do you create space in your soul for hunger? What do you not do? What do you not watch? What do you not consume? So you can feel the wilderness and you can feel the barren nature of a desert. So you can feel bored. So you can feel frustrated and irritated because you're not being entertained and you're not being satisfied in all these kind of shortcut superficial ways and out of that place of desperation out of that place of desolation out of that place of longing you become more aware of your spiritual fervor your spiritual hunger your spiritual desire and in doing so that's when you actually start feeling satisfied so the next thing that happens is this the devil takes him to the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you are the son of God, again challenging his identity, if you're the son of God, then throw yourself down for it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall not put your God to the test. What's happening here? So he's moved from provision, turned the stone into bread, to power. All right, if you're the son of God, let me see your power. If you're the son of God, then you have all authority over these angels. Command them. Tell them what to do. Jump off. They'll come and save you. He's appealing to the ego, to the power, lust within the heart of man. The problem is it doesn't work with Jesus. He responds again, it is written. You shall not put your God to the test. I hear what you're saying. I hear you quoting Psalm 91. Knowing the Bible isn't good enough. You've got to live these words. As Eugene Peterson said, you've got to eat this book. It's got to become a part of you. It's not head knowledge. So deep, there's, a, there's a deeper understanding, a deeper truth. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We are all, at one point or another, tempted to yield our power in such a way that strokes our ego and secures our reputation, even if it comes at the expense of someone else. We're all tempted to do it. You know, I know the conversations I've been in when people are sat around chatting. Maybe they're talking about someone that they admire. And I think to myself, you know what? I know that person. Not only that, uh, I have had dinner with that person. Actually, you know, not, not only that, that person, they like my music. So let me, let, let me throw this into the conversation. You know this person that you're talking about? Who you all love and admire? Yeah? They're a fan. What happened just then? That is a yielding of power. That's, that's an expression of ego. Is it inherently evil? No. But does it come from a place of wanting to create a sense of superiority? Often, yes. And this passage in this season of Lent, man, it's exposing those attributes within me. And I'm being honest because I hope that you could be honest about it in yourself as well. When do you leave a conversation feeling like you said something or did something that didn't necessarily really overtly or objectively put someone down, but it definitely lifted you up, you know? And you leave and you just don't feel a deep centeredness. You don't feel a peace. You feel like, hmm, I don't like what I did there. There's nothing more powerful than restrained power. You know, Jesus on the cross was never more powerful even though he was naked and hanging on a Roman torture device. Why? Because he didn't have to be there. He let them put him there. He chose to be there. You're never more powerful than when you lay your life down. You're never more powerful than when you are restrained. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The fascinating thing about the meek is it's a military word, and it was given to horses who were incredibly obedient to their masters riding them. So with one small adjustment, they would change direction. They're restrained. They're meek. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who have restrained power. They shall inherit the earth. Those who are obedient. Those who have learned to lean in. Those who have learned to follow. They shall actually inherit the earth. It's not the ones. Dynamite isn't powerful when it's gone off. It's powerful when it hasn't gone off. It's more powerful when it's just sitting there. Because once it's gone off, it's like, all right, there it is. Once someone explodes, once someone like reveals their power, it's like, all right, there it is. But when someone has restrained power, 
That's when they're really carrying an authority. When they're in control of their power, that's when they're in authority. Blessed and meek. Ultimately, those who will rule the world are those who don't have to. Those who don't have an identity that's dependent upon power and control and leadership. Those who are able to follow. Those who are able to celebrate others. Those who are able to lift people up. What if every door, this is something I believe about myself and it's a thought that I had years ago. What if every single door that opens up for me leads me to a room that someone else deserves? So every room that I get to walk into that might have been opened because of, I don't know, an opportunity or a gift, I get to bring someone else with me because that room is just as much theirs. What if every time you get to a junction, you let a car go instead of moving out because their destination is just as important as yours? Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. There is nothing more powerful than restrained power. Jesus says, I know who I am. I don't need to do something to prove who I am. I know who I am. I have nothing to lose and I, lose and I have nothing to prove. There's an incredible scene in The Lion King. You might remember this where Simba is walking through the wilderness, just like Jesus. He's walking through the desert and he's confronted by the prophet Rafiki. And Rafiki says to him, to this lost and bewildered soul. He says, I know who you are. And Simba says, you don't know who I am. And Rafiki says, I do. I'm paraphrasing. He says, you're Mufasa's boy. And Simba looks at him and says, you must not know my father is dead. And Rafiki says, wrong again. Your father lives. He lives in you. He was trying to say to Simba, who you are is whose you are. Everything you have is a gift. Everything you have is inheritance. Who you are is whose you are. And who you are is whose you are. St. Paul said it like this, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. So the life I live in the flesh, I live by what? Affirmation, success, accolades, power, control? No, no. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. In what? In the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. What he's saying there is who I am is defined by someone else's power, someone else's expression of love and affection towards me. That's who I am. It's an incredible gift. It's an incredible point of freedom to walk out in authority, knowing that the most powerful thing you could do today is serve someone else, is lay down your life. And again, the devil takes him to a very high mountain. I want you to remember that, a high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. And I just want to say, you know what? You're allowed to do that as well. Be gone. Enough. I believe in healing. I believe in therapy. I believe in the long journey of coming to a place of inner freedom and sanctuary. But I also believe in the daily practice of taking thoughts captive and standing at the gate of your mind and looking at thoughts and saying, not today. You're not coming in here today. You know, yesterday my little daughter was having a tantrum, as two-year-olds do, and it was going on and on and on. I got to this point where I just... I, I held her by her shoulders, gently but firmly. I looked into her eyes and I said, enough. 
That was it. Enough. And she went, <sighs> she started breathing slowly. We took a deep breath. <sighs> Enough. It's time for this to stop now. What I was doing was I was just taking authority. Enough. You actually want a way out of this as well. Someone has to say it. Enough. And Jesus says to Satan, enough. That's it. Go away. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And guess what happens next? It says the devil left. I think the devil probably had another 50 temptations. But as soon as Jesus said, be gone, that's what he had to do. He left. It was over. Now, this is so significant because what he's doing here, he's tried provision, then he's tried power, and now he's trying possessions. He said, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything that you can see. I'll give you the nations. And Jesus isn't going to bow because there's only one place that he bows. There's only unto one being he bows. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. What you serve is what you worship. What you worship is what you give worth to and where you receive worth from. So this third thing is around where do we build idols in our life that give us a sense of possession? Where do we build something into our life where we actually have a sense of, if I can give honor to this and worth to this, be it a relationship, be it a career, then I will have a sense of entitlement. I will have a sense of possession. I will have a sense of ownership. I've done this with my career. I'll be, I've made an idol out of my career and my artistry at times. I've thought to myself, if I could, if I could effectively, if I could worship and if I could submit to the higher power of my gifting, then I will possess something. Then I'll have this reputation or I'll have this measure of success. If I get my worth from that, then perhaps I'll get a sense of entitlement and I'll get a sense of power from it as, as a result. We don't create a relationship with an idol that appears threatening to us. We create relationships with an idol that are comforting to us. So one of the oldest ancient images, stories of idol worship that you might have in your mind is the Israelites creating the golden calf. You know, the context is Moses is up the mountain, 40 days meeting with God, getting this great manifesto of the spiritual life, the Ten Commandments. And when he comes down, he finds that the Israelites have built a golden calf, a calf. It's interesting that the neighboring desert tribes had a God they worshiped and the image was a bull, this huge, grotesque, threatening bull. They create a calf. Why? Well, if, if you walked into a field and it said, beware of the bull, you want to get out of that field as soon as you can, or maybe you're not even entering it. But if you walk into a field and it says, there's a calf in here, well, you're not really threatened. You'll, you'll, you'll saunter through that field. So we don't create an idol instantly that could be threatening to us. We create one that's comforting to us. So they create the golden calf, not the golden bull. If there's an idol in your life, it's probably giving you a sense of comfort the security of a relationship, that, which might not be inherently wrong, but it's where you're getting your worth from. A reputation, a career, the things that I've already talked about and shared with you. It doesn't make the, the thing itself inherently evil, but perhaps it's instilling with you a sense of identity and worth and kind of connection to possession, which doesn't bring this life of abundance that we've been talking about. Are you with me? So Jesus says, nah, I'm not doing it. I'm not bowing down. You shall worship the Lord your God and so and only him shall you serve. Which I just think is so beautiful and so powerful. 
because he's coming off this incredible experience of that that very God he speaks of speaking over him this is my beloved son I get my worth from the place that knows me best I don't give my worth to something that actually only knows me by my gift or only knows me by my um, what I can give to it the place where I get my worth is actually a place that I can't benefit. I can't make God God. I can't make God better. I can't make God stronger. I do nothing for God. God just enjoys me. I am not a tool in the belt of a workman. I am a picture in the wallet of a father. God doesn't get me out to use me. God gets me out to enjoy me. So my response is worship, is adoration, is awe, is thankfulness, is gratitude. So this is, this is the scripture that, that kind of forms this practice of the next 40 days of Lent. This is where we get the sense from where we, where we commit to fasting, self-denial. You know, I believe in self-care. I believe in self-care, but I also believe in self-denial. And I don't think the two are at war with one another. Sometimes the best way you can care for yourself is denying yourself something. Discipline is an act that costs you who you don't want to be. I want to be a man in his 80s and in his 90s that is a well of gratitude and awe and wonder still and to get to that place i've recognized i need to let go of some of these shortcuts these easy fulfillments these self-gratifying self-comforting rituals and habits that i have i need to discover that inner desert again that inner wilderness where the voice of God becomes my source, my comfort, where I begin to see God in all things, where I become more curious and more childlike in my relationship with the world. And I can't do that if I haven't been bored for a long time, if I'm constantly consuming information and entertainment because I'm afraid of just being silent. So this is how the book of Matthew opens, Matthew 4. I want to show you how it ends. The very end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 16. I want to read a short passage just in ending this, this, uh, this episode together. I read this on a train and it blew my mind. I felt like I wanted to stand up on a table and host a revival meeting, man. I was so amped. It says this. This is after the resurrection. So Jesus has been raised from the dead. Reports of it are spreading. And the disciples are obviously eager to meet Jesus again. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Where? To the mountain. Remember, I told you, remember the word mountain when I read that last scripture. To the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, we don't know how long they were at the mountain. They might have been there for days, bewildered, confused, anticipating Jesus, standing there. And we don't know how Jesus arrived. Maybe he walked up the mountain or maybe he appeared out of nowhere. However it was, however long they were there, and however he appeared, when he did appear, it says they worshipped him. Some doubted him. Now, this word worship is so compelling because there's no other context in the scriptures where the disciples just worship him. They're in awe of him. They ask him questions. They're enamored by him, but worship him. And the word worship, the Greek word proskunao or proskunos, is actually a phrase, and the phrase means kiss the ground. Kiss the ground. So their act of worship was lowering themselves as close to the ground as they could get to lift him up, to give him what they believed that he deserved, worship. 
And the next thing that Jesus says is this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He has taken them to a high place, a mountain, just like where the devil took him to a high place. And the devil takes him to the high place and says, look over at all the nations. Look at all the nations. If you bow down, if you worship me, I'll give you to them. I'll give them to you. And Jesus says, nah. Psalm 124. The whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. This has always been mine. This is mine. And I'm going to one day return to the mountain and I'm going to give it to the people that have chosen to follow and worship me. He says this, go into the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, and I love this, behold, I will be with you always until the end of the age. Kiss the ground, kiss the ground. This whole narrative of Lent is a decision to move into the wilderness. Why? Just to be hungry? Just to be disciplined? No, no, no. To end in a state of adoration and worship. To end in a state of kissing the ground. It's so, it's so significant. This process of questioning, what do we, where do we get our security of provision from? Where do we get our power? What do we possess? Analyzing these attributes of our humanity, of our ego, of our day-to-day experiences, really putting it under the microscope, going through prayer and acknowledgement, silence and solitude of our inner world, acknowledging it all, leads us to this point of acceptance and adoration to God. That's where we're getting to. That's where we're going. That we'd arrive on Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, and our posture wouldn't be entitled cynicism, but it would be humble adoration. Kiss the ground. Jesus doesn't say, look, go to your families. Go to your workplaces. Go to your spaces of influence. Go to where you want to see change and renewal and prize those places from the cold, callous hands of the enemies. No, no, no. It doesn't belong to him. The whole world, the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Go into those places knowing who you are and whose you are. You're Mufasa's boy. You're Mufasa's girl. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now I'm commissioning and charging you to go as someone who has nothing to lose and nothing to prove, no reputation to protect. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. There's nothing you can take from me. I'm a dead man walking. I don't feel mocked and I don't feel offended. There's nothing you can offend in me. There's nothing you can mock in me. It's all dead. That ego, that reputation is dead. I'm a free man, I'm a free woman. I'm dissatisfied. I'm unsatisfied with the things of this world. I don't do that anymore. Why? It doesn't do anything for me. I don't consume and consume and consume because I think at the end of all that consuming, I'm going to be fulfilled. It doesn't do anything for me. I can take long breaks from things that people are still addicted to for a sense of identity and worth. I can let things go. I can support and celebrate others. I can lay myself down. I can lift people up. I'm a free man. How and why? I've learned to kiss the ground. I've learned to get low. I've learned to position myself in humility. That's where true power is found. That's where true authority comes from. Yeah. So I hope that we can go into this next chapter, this next 40 days with a sober 
humility, a sober reverence, a sober sense of expectation that over these 40 days, like it was for Noah in the ark, or Moses on the mountain, or the Israelites in the desert, something's gonna change. A renewal is gonna happen. Where do you find your power? Where does your provision come from? What do you possess and how do you possess it? These are some of the questions I'd love for you to ponder as we go on this journey. I'm gonna be pondering them myself. Where do I get my sense of security? What do I do that sometimes costs me my peace just for the sake of affirmation and reputation? What would it look like to be fully here, fully present and fully free? All right, my friends, I'm gonna keep these episodes coming and we're gonna, we're gonna continue this process and this practice of kissing the ground together. The door is in the floor. <laughs> All right, peace.